Welcome to the sixth episode of our podcast series, Beyond the Obvious, produced by FASTA, the Foundation for the Economics of Sustainability, and the European Health Futures Forum. I'm Sean O'Conline, Agashohe Pod Krele Ivereshe, Tafolcheroiv. And I'm Caroline White. In this podcast, we'll be looking at food production with a focus on Ireland, but much of the discussion will apply elsewhere too. Agriculture is a lucrative sector of the Irish economy. As in many other countries, food production in Ireland has become highly globalised and commodity-based. Yet despite the profits that are being made by some, it's increasingly hard for many Irish farmers to survive, and large areas of rural Ireland are in decline. The country also imports many basic foodstuffs in large quantities, such as, surprisingly, potatoes and flour, while we export large quantities of others to the far-flung corners of the globe. There is also the extremely worrying ecological damage caused by industrial agriculture in Ireland, including a widespread collapse in biodiversity and significant releases of greenhouse gases from the mass production of livestock. Shifting away from fossil fuel use and productivity-focused farming means moving towards a more agroecological approach to food production, which minimises its environmental impact. We'll also need to shorten supply lines for essential goods, such as food, so that we can survive during periods of economic contraction. In this podcast, we'll be talking to two farmers who are involved in a very practical way in bringing about these kinds of radical changes on Irish farms. Fergal Anderson runs Leaf and Root Farm in County Galway, which produces vegetables and fruit for local markets. He's also a member of the core group of the new farming organisation, Talav Beal. Our other guest, Nathan Jackson, is an agroecological farmer and is involved with community-supported agricultural projects in the Dublin area. We'll start with Nathan. So Nathan, you've been involved in farming on a community-supported agriculture project in Ireland. Could you explain what that is and how it supports agroecology? Sure, yeah. So yeah, basically I'm involved with CSA, a community-supported agriculture scheme in Selbridge and Kildare. And the basic premise of it is that rather than the farm having customers, it has members who have an agreement with the farmer that they will take a year's worth of produce, or it could be nine months or a year, and that they will pay for that year and take a share in their harvest. So it's a good year, they get a large amount of produce. If it's a bad year, they get less. Basically, they're sharing the risk with the farmer. That's kind of the crucial part of it, I suppose. And where it's of benefit to farmers is that ultimately farming production is very tight to the wire. So any kind of disruption created by, by the weather or the market or anything else drives them out of business. So it creates stability for them. And also, from the point of view of agroecology, organic or agrological food production is inherently more expensive. There's a, there's a lot more labour involved in producing it, basically. It's more or less the same way our great-grandparents produce food, although we have some kind of pieces of knowledge and technology that have made it easier. But, but nonetheless, it is labour-intensive. So you have to receive the full price for what you produce. Selling to supermarket isn't viable. So by creating a CSA system, you get more than the people who pay in supermarkets. Creates a direct market for you, which means you can make a living wage from produce rather than having to scale up from a huge farm to produce enough to make a wage. Has it been a successful venture for you so far, would you say? 
the fact that it exists, the success, really, um, in the sense that when I started, I only had a less than a quarter of an acre garden to work from that wasn't viable. So I managed to make a wage as a farmer through the five or six years from the CSA system because we had a community group. We were able to access land from the county council and actually build a farm. And there's a great community around it. But really, it has been kept going by the kind of community spirit, if you like, what's, what's actually built the infrastructure and cover the running costs is the involvement of the membership coming along helping at certain times if we haven't had to hire in extra workers or anything like that but you get members coming along to help out and then also members of the steering committee and some of the wider members do a lot of work looking for grants and you know building infrastructure like polytunnels and irrigation systems in their spare time so that has all kept it rolling i suppose so in terms of it taking off as a movement and really becoming very widespread a large percentage of the population grasping the benefits of the concept and getting involved or government support we receive no subsidies for example mm. so most farms in ireland are supported by their cap subsidies so we need a subsidy for agroecological farms to help them get, keep going or things like basic income how, how was it getting the community together in the first place getting enough interest to start it up how was that i mean it was quite difficult but we had it easier than i think a lot of other farms in the country other csa farms have had in the country it was easier for us in that we set up in really a suburban area of Dublin. There was a lot of people, there's 60,000 odd people in the three towns around us. So as soon as we started putting out leaflets, putting up posters and things, anyone with kind of a bit of an interest in this sort of thing came to it, you know. We had a good pool of people to work from and we were able to get people together in that sense. Uh, it still took, I mean, it took the, the planning committee set up, I think in 2011, and really took two or three years to build up significant numbers to, to actually pull off the farm. The planning committee that became steering committee have put in just to count how many hundreds of hours of work. You, you know yourselves from running any kind of organisation. There's yeah. a huge amount of work. In oh, yeah. Can yeah. I just ask you, um, yeah. maybe you might describe the scope, the numbers of people involved. And I understand sometimes in CSAs, people pay up front, which is a great help to the farmer, obviously. But does that work? Does it work in an Irish context? And how does it work for what you actually produce? Like what kind of food do you produce in an Irish environment and does that work for Irish people? Yeah, good question. So in terms of the type of food we produce, we produce vegetables, we've occasionally produced pork, but mostly vegetables and it does work for the members who have stuck around through the years. It works very well. We produce a, a wide variety of very interesting vegetables that we won't normally get in the shops. You get a lot of people really just have a membership because they like the tomatoes and kohlrabi and things. Tomatoes are very different to what they are in the supermarket. And, you know, there's certain produce they like through the year. They like to work with the variety of produce. We've also had quite a few people have joined out of sort of an ideological notion that it'll be it's a, it's a good idea. And then they actually get the produce and realise that it's often not broccoli, carrots and peas. So they, they actually can't really find they're not using it and, and they end up leaving. So, yeah, people have the type of produce you grow, basically. So it, it depends a lot on people's cooking style as to whether or not that works. Well. I think for most people, paying up front is fine. To be honest, we're only asking for about eight euros a week thereabouts, so it's not a huge amount, you know. From your perspective on the ground, how would you see it evolving? You know, what would you like to see happening? It, it depends a lot on what our wider society decides to do with itself. I suppose, you know, at the end of the day, this CSA is something that could really work for farmers. It does provides the kind of income you can make on, on a relatively small amount of space by providing direct community is dwarfs the kind of income you can make of 40 cows so mm. there's a lot of very small a lot of small farms sort of a small herd of cows and they're just kind of doing things the way they've always done them and they don't tend to really see a other viable option beyond doing that so yeah there's huge scope for people to be approaching those farmers to, you know, to build it develop their own kind of csa group in their community approach those sorts of farmers and you know begin finding ways to build a, a local agroecological farm 
with them and it's it's entirely necessary that we do that in the context of, of climate change basically so given that people are becoming more and more aware i think there is a real chance that we could do the work to, to, to support farmers and you know, build ecological farms part of the challenge there is showing people why it's necessary i suppose and to me now it would be it's necessary because at the moment we operate a huge monocultural globally connected farming system where when you really analyze it, it, it what it actually is is we're all being supported by three or four key grain producing regions like russia and america and so on so these so-called bread baskets climate extremes and extreme weather we could see those suddenly failing which essentially means mass famine mm. so kind of a matter of our survival to support diverse local food production and actually an agroecological farm is inherently more productive than a big monoculture because um, if you have a bad year and the, the wheat or potatoes don't come out very well, your fruits and nuts and perennial vegetables might do very well. So you still have something. And I've talked to gardeners, for example, there's a, a gardening movement that started in America. It's called nutrient-dense growing. I won't go into the technical details. But anyway, they basically uh, grow all of their own food on a quarter-acre size plot in about 10 hours work a week. So it's highly productive, small plots of land. And their soil is so healthy that it's, it's much better able to deal with droughts and, and extreme weather events. So we really need a very diverse, very resilient local food system. So I think as people begin to grasp that, I think we can definitely have the means to drive through that system by working with our farmers and supporting our farmers as local communities. That being said, anyone who's worked with organisations knows there's a huge amount of work in doing that. And people have to decide whether they want to put that work in or not. If we don't, then we're probably going to be in serious trouble in a decade or two. Mm. I could go on for hours about that. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, that's it. That was Nathan Jackson talking about his experience as a community-supported agriculture farmer in the Dublin area. Um, now we're going to move on to Fergal Anderson, who's also a farmer. He's in County Galway. Um, we'll open up the discussion after that. Fergal, you're involved in the new organisation, Talab Bio. Could you explain what it is and why you believe it's important? Yeah, so Talab Bio is a new representative organisation in Ireland for food producers, um, open also to consumers. And I suppose it emerged from a series of meetings that would have been had in Ireland between 2017-2018. Some of them uh, related to food sovereignty, uh, food sovereignty gathering in Westport, uh, there was the Feeding Ourselves conferences in Clock Jordan, where there were a lot of discussions about the need for a new narrative around food and agriculture in Ireland. There was a feeling at those meetings that the agribusiness narrative was very dominant. We didn't have a counterweight to that. And so many of the farmers who attended those events would have been involved in biological farming or organics or permaculture or agroforestry or direct sales, regenerative agriculture, lots of alternatives. And there was a feeling that those those things needed to be brought into the mainstream in order to counteract that narrative and also to provide a new direction for our food and agricultural systems in Ireland, given the context of climate change and ecological decline and and the crisis that we're facing in society. So what that meant was that we needed to kind of articulate ourselves. And I think what we started to do was to build this organization for sort of for farmers, by farmers. And so that's meant that we've had to organize ourselves. There was also this feeling, I suppose, that there was a, a growing support for that kind of change that we wanted to see uh, among citizens. And that we wanted to be a little bit the bridge between citizens, environmentalists and farmers who are very often sort of put in opposing camps. Um, 
whereas all of the farmers I think that are in Talapio would certainly be very much environmentalists as well. And we want to show that that's, that's also something that can be possible. So we founded it officially this year in March. There was a meeting in Calrico. We have a modest 50 or 60 members at the moment. We're only getting started and we were trying to organize things like online membership through the website. But I mean, all the work has, has been done by farmers in their spare time, which is not something we have an awful lot of. And so it's, it's been difficult. But mm, I think we're, mm. we're getting there slowly but surely. That's great. I would just add, yeah. I could add as well, I suppose, sorry, just as, as an adjunct to that. The other part of the discussion that we wanted to open up was a wider discussion about the economic structures of food and farming, not just in Ireland, but in terms of international trade, production and consumption. Uh, a few of the things that Nathan has mentioned there about the, the global food system and how that functions so that we can better understand Ireland's place in it. Because I think there's a lot of, again, there's a narrative out there about the green island and it's this green farming model that we have here. But the reality is that a lot of that is dependent on imported feeds or other inputs which are very energy intensive and come from abroad. So we want to sort of place Ireland into the international context, position of people who are working the land in a, in a more truly sustainable way. That makes sense. You you actually you have links with um, Via Campesina, don't you? The international network of of uh... we do, and, and that was that was one of the other motivations, I suppose, for starting up an organisation here was to, was recognising that we're not alone in that struggle. We joined. We've actually joined the European Coordination Via Campesina. Uh, becoming mm. Ireland's first member of Via Campesina. Maybe there will be more in the future, who knows? Which I think is actually quite a big step. It, it, again, I think we'll begin to see the uh, the positive results of that over a course of years rather than months. And I think that's another thing that we're very aware of in the organisation is that like there are limitations to what we can do, that we're not going to be able to move as quickly as uh, an NGO might move who has five or ten full-funded staff. That's kind of one of the characteristics of, of our movement. We have to accept that. We have to kind of work with it as opposed to try and push things at a speed which we can't support. So, yeah, we're very excited to be part of Via Campesina and to be able to link in with other member organizations around Europe and the world. And hopefully this could be the start of something very positive, I would say, for food agriculture in Ireland. Yeah, it's great to see uh, an organization of, of farmers, which, as you say, aren't. it's not the stereotype in Ireland of farmers who are just into the whole agribusiness scene. I think there's a critique coming actually from let's say conventional farmers and we're seeing it in the beef plan movement we've seen it a little bit with the Irish Natura and Hill Farmers Organisation are two organisations who have kind of split off from the IFA and are beginning to articulate in their own way what their members require. Now what we would like to do is to kind of go a little bit beyond just demanding a better price but to bring the question to what kind of look at systemic change and I think that's yeah yeah. A shift from just talking about how we can improve the circumstances, which is important as well, improve the circumstances of the farmers on the ground, to how we can actually build an entirely new model, which would ultimately improve not just the circumstances of the farmers, but the environment, the society, the community, etc. Yeah. And, uh, sorry, Fargal, can I, I put it to you? Can you give me a new narrative? I mean, you talked there. I'll prompt you a little bit because we, I know Board Bia and all the other agencies, they promote the Green Island and we're exporting. I think we're the largest exporter of milk powder to China. We're one yeah. of the largest exporters of beef in the world. And yet we get all our potatoes and all our flour imported into the country. So uh, in that context, like, so give me, give me the new narrative for food production or whatever you want to call it. We, we need to look at the historical context of where we're at as well. And I think Ireland has... I would consider a food system based on our colonial history. So like an extractive system, which just takes the commodity crops at lowest possible value and exports them overseas. So that's why we have things like the milk powder and the beef, which are being exported. I suppose what we want is for farmers to be rewarded for their work, which is one thing that we don't see at the moment. We see farmers being rewarded through subsidies. 
We want to see being rewarded for regenerating ecosystems, which is something that is urgently needs to happen. And I think that we need to prioritize the regeneration of our ecosystems over production, which is something that would be a heresy in the world of the IFA. And that we don't want to just focus on providing raw materials for commodity markets. So, I mean, what we would like to see is a refocus of the work of organizations such as Chagas towards integrated diversified farming systems so that they can support farmers in taking their production from a single crop monoculture to a diversified production. And that will also require a change in the agricultural economy in terms of processing. It'll have to put facilities for harvesting and processing and perhaps uh, industries which transform other products, be they hemp or native hardwoods, etc. But we'd like to see the Irish government embracing those ideas and, and putting the investment into those areas which are diversified as opposed to the monoculture. I think there's things like agroforestry, agroecology, regenerative agriculture. If we could embrace those with the same zeal with which we embraced the modernization of agriculture when we joined the EU, I think we could have a, a big transformation in our production systems, agricultural production systems. Uh, that's something that, I mean, is entirely possible. It's just a question of the will. And I think that farmers are increasingly open to it. And the idea of going back to a more diversified farm is something I've heard farmers mention very often, even conventional farmers who know that the business model even that they're operating on now, where they have very high cost inputs and are producing something that is that's gone out of their farm below cost, is completely unsustainable. And that, that the farm that they had 50 or 60 years ago that the, their parents might have had, where they were growing more of their own feed, where they had less production, where they had a lot more autonomy, let's say, over their production, was a much, much better model. And I think it's not a question of going backwards. We're, we're talking about going, going forwards, but going forwards in a new direction. Could you put that in the context of rural decline, uh, which is obviously happening all over the country? Yeah, well, if farming is a lonely job now and the countryside is increasingly becoming depopulated, you see people moving to cities. And I mean, I look around me here and most of my neighbours are in their late 60s. Some of them are farming into their 70s and I'd say some of them are farming into their 80s, you know, and they love what they do. But it's not a very inviting environment for young people to come into. If you can imagine, if you're saying, okay, come, come and work in this job where you don't actually get paid for what you produce. There's not many other people around. Uh, and everyone else around you is kind of aging. It's not a very attractive environment to come into. So what the countryside needs most is an injection of young people. And mm-hmm. I think, you know, what we can offer with these alternative farming models, which, as Nathan mentioned, are, are very often more labor intensive, is building new communities in the countryside, new communities in, in rural areas, which can reinvigorate a lot of those small towns and villages which are now struggling with the challenges posed by this massive movement to the cities. So, I mean, I, I think we, what we can offer is part of the, the solution in terms of providing work in rural areas, more employment, I think we can provide, and perhaps with that, make it more attractive for people to continue to farm. The existing farming model is not going to do that for us. Nobody is going to come and take on a, a farm which isn't profitable and continue doing the same thing. So there has to be pathways for young people and, and for the sons and daughters of farmers themselves to find ways of farming which are different. And I think people are finding those ways a little bit themselves. And there's a lot of very motivated people we find who have a lot of energy and throw their whole life into, find, into man, and manage to do that. But we have to make it easier. I've had this discussion before. We have a tendency in, I think, our society in general to look at these exceptional examples and think that they can become the norm. But very often there are people who are pushing against the, the tide, general tide of society. And instead of expecting everyone to do that, because it's not an easy it's not an easy task, we have to create easy pathways for people to follow so that it becomes something very normal. And it should be something very normal that people decide when they leave school, I'm just going to become uh, the local food provider. It should be a better job than the accountant or the local doctor or whatever it is. It's just as important. So like, it's, a, it's about a value change in, in our society and how we, how we 
understand the work of farming, work of caring for the land, and it should become something which is more respected than, than nearly any of the other professions, given the urgency with which it needs to be reformed. Could I just say something on that? I was really into what Fergal was saying, and, and to be honest with you, as someone with experience of sort of suburban culture, I meet hundreds of people who would love to do that. A lot of particularly young people and young families and stuff up around Dublin. Being here is very expensive. It costs an awful, you know, rent is enormous, cost of living in general is enormous, cost of childcare is enormous, and when I, when I tell them about the kind of thing I do, they're like, Jesus, I'd love to do that instead of working in an office eight hours a day. But they just struggle saying, like, it's not practically viable. You know, you have to go and just try and buy a farm down the country. And realistically, we actually, as part of the CSA, one of the things that come out of our CSA is a housing cooperative group. And there's about 10 people in that who would love to just buy some agricultural land and build a simple house on it, which, which you can do for a year, for one year of your rent, you could actually build a decent straw bale house on that land. It wouldn't technically be legal, but with the planning commission laws. But they would love to make that move, but the problem is you'd have to save up the equivalent of a deposit for a mortgage and then go do it, and you'd still be to find a way of living in that environment and all the rest of it. It's a a huge stumbling block. If that could be made more easier, I think there's thousands of people who who would do it. Yes, you said it's a big risk, and and, you're going into an area of the country you don't know anything about. You're going to see perhaps moving without the skills that you might need to get everything started. So like, yeah. I mean, it's, it's asking an awful lot. It's asking too much of people actually. And people That's do good. do it. And I've, I've met many people who, who have done it. It's to say it's not an easy transition to make. So like one of the things that we're talking about is how to make that easier. Another thing that needs would need to be addressed there is access to land because that's obviously a big yeah. issue Absolutely. in Absolutely. Ireland um, as well. Not one we discuss very much. Mm. I've, I've often said to people, if, if there is that demand out there that Nathan's talking about, there needs to be a campaign around access to land for people in Ireland because we had a, a land reform in this country which is really unprecedented across Europe. You're talking about the Land Act or the 19th century? I'm talking, about, I'm talking about the, the Land Acts and the Land Commission. Mm, I mean, I, yeah. I was talking to a neighbour up here and I, I was saying, oh, whose field is that field there? And he goes, oh, that field, that's such and such's field. He was given that in the 70s by the Land Commission. And I said, yeah, yeah. That in the 70s. So that's within a living memory. Yeah. Uh, farmers have been given land from big estates which have been broken up. So the, the idea that you can get land through a system of redistribution is within our, it's still within our living memory, which is which is quite remarkable, I think. And it, we should tap into that. It would yeah. require people who do want land and who do think they would be interested in making that kind of transition to come together and to try and articulate a campaign around that. I think it could be quite effective. Like I said, it's, it's very hard for a farmer who may have gotten their own land, partly through land commission redistribution, to deny that to somebody else. I think a lot of those farmers who did receive land to the Land Commission back in the 50s and 60s, the narrative is given to them correctly. You know, we're talking about bringing people onto your land to farm it, to work it, to reinvigorate it. They'd be very open to it. As you say, a lot of them are ageing and lonely. And if the kind of community vibe was there, they'd be happy for it. But I, but I also think that that sort of concept just f- sort of flies in the face of globalised capitalism as we've come to know it. We need to put the work into building the movement for it. But I think it does also link in with the Extinction Rebellion and it is going to take sustained civil disobedience by the population to actually drive it through. You know, in the end of the day, we only had the Land Commission because we had a rebellion. There is a big role for the Extinction Rebellion movement in driving through policy like that. So are you really talking about a, a land rental scheme of some kind? It's very hard to see farmers, current farmers, uh, who are so attached to their land actually selling it or anything. So well, are you t- I think the example of the organisation Terre de Lien in France I mean, as far as I understand, a lot of the, what they do is they're taking land from farmers who are coming to the end of their lives or and are transitioning their farm and perhaps don't have a, someone who's going to take it on. 
And what happens to those farms, if, if one of my neighbours decides to stop farming or passes away, the farm will be bought up by the local farmers. It'll just become enlarged. So what we'll see is a increasingly large and mechanised farms where you had a broader spread of diversified farms. And what, what happens with that process is people begin to knock through field walls and expand and bigger and etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. And you'll end up with, in each parish or townland, four or five farms which are essentially run by the agri-farm manager or something like this in the place of farming families. That's the model we're heading towards. So if we say, okay, well, let's take this farm, which is going to be broken up and sold off to the neighbours, and we offer it to people who have a project for agroecological land use, okay? And if, we, if those people are available in Ireland, when perhaps they are, then the, the this organisation basically would act as the intermediary in leasing that land on a long-term lease to people who are interested in taking it on. So it's permanently taken out of the speculative economy and it becomes used in perpetuity for agroecological land use. There's a lot of weight attached to land ownership in Ireland and families tend to hold on to land even if they're not farming it or rent it out for a while and don't want to give it up. But that's something that maybe we can address through social change. I think the possibilities are out there. I'm not sure if they're always going to come from the government because they very often they do it to facilitate increased production rather than increased social or community benefit. So we'll have to set them up ourselves. Some things the government will be able to help with and some things they won't be able to help with because they're always going to be starting from the wrong foot. Is that a role that Ontolive Bio would see themselves doing or not? It's actually a very technical job. That, I mean, an organisation could do it. And I think that organisation in France has actually set up as a foundation so that every time they take a piece of land into the foundation, it actually gave them a lot of capital that they could work off at the beginning. I think that's it's more of a technical one. And, and, and I mean, land, the laws around land ownership and leasing, etc., would require legal structures that Ontolive Bio don't have at the moment, you'd need legal expertise, etc. We need an organisation that can focus on that. I mean, it's something we'd be happy to contribute to and work with, but I don't know if it's something we can see ourselves doing in the short term. I think there is a group trying to set up in the country building a land trust, but uh, yeah. people can go about doing it in their local communities now, trying to set up CSAs and things, and then we need to put pressure on the government for things like providing grants and the capital for polytunnels and small tools and so on, and also because you know the government's sitting on a huge amount of land, NAMA and so on, so that could also be another pressure point we could access, I suppose, particularly up around the Dublin area. There's probably multiple organisations needed to try and figure out things like how to do a land trust. Is there anything that you'd like to mention before we wrap up? We didn't talk about Brexit. I don't know if you want to talk about Brexit. That's fine. All please. I'd say about Brexit, and I'd be brief there, is all the times we encounter crises like this, this, this should be an opportunity. And, and Brexit is an incredible opportunity to reorient Irish agriculture. In terms of our dependence on the, the UK market, we shouldn't be looking to that as a problem. We can look at that as, a, as an opportunity to try and embrace the kind of changes that we've been talking about, about moving towards a model which is more based on diversified farming system. And just the other thing I would say is that we need to open up a discussion about food sovereignty in Ireland. Given our history here, I think Ireland has taken a very irresponsible line in terms of how, how it interacts with global markets. And mm. this idea that we can't even feed ourselves, like that we're importing so much food from from overseas that we can produce here, that we're dumping below-cost products in the markets of other companies and possibly damaging their agricultural economies and capacities to feed themselves. I don't think that that's a model that, given our history, we should be supporting morally or politically. So food sovereignty is the starting point for me to begin to talk about how we can build more just, more democratic, participative model of food and agriculture production here, which doesn't interfere with the markets in third countries, and which also respects the right of people everywhere to produce and consume food which is culturally appropriate to their place 
I think it's just a good starting point for us and it should be where we started at independence as opposed to being drawn into that global commodity markets and, and export model, which I said, is, is, is a direct consequence of our colonial history. The only thing I, I'd add, I suppose, really how, how quickly we get there and how whether we get there in time comes down to how we orientate our lives at the moment. I would just draw attention to the issue of the climate emergency. I mean, just the other day, I listened to a lecture by John Doyle. He works in the EU on food policy and he was addressing just a small group of leaders in the UN, I think. You can find this on YouTube. He basically told them we have 10 years to relocalise most food economies in the world or mm. there's going to be mass starvation because yeah. of climate change. The reality is that where we're going, it's going to hit us in the face quite quickly. We have to begin to realise that our survival is threatened by the situation mm. we're in. Mm. I'm just saying, if we don't drastically change course and do the kind of things that Fergal's talking about, we're probably going to see mass starvation within certainly my lifetime. And that comes with a whole lot of other problems like social breakdown and all the rest of it and fascism and things that we do not want to see. So mm. it's obviously it's up to every individual what they do with themselves. But we have to orientate our lives around what our society's needs are over the next 30 or 40 years. If there's some one thing I'd say to the people who may be listening to this podcast is that your life cannot continue as it has done in the past. Perhaps we can look at the positives that can come out of that. Because I personally would look forward to an opportunity to work less, to spend yeah. more time with my family, spend more time in nature. Those are the things we can focus on because, I mean, everyone's incredibly busy all the time. And that's part of the reason it's very hard to do things like CSAs here because, I mean, people don't seem to have the time to do anything. If we had a little bit more time, these alternatives might be a bit more practical for all of us. That was Fergal Anderson, a farmer involved with Talovio, literally living land, a network of farmers, growers and land-based workers who are organising for change in our food and agriculture systems. Our other guest was Nathan Jackson, also a farmer, who's involved with some community-supported agriculture projects in the Dublin area. Thank you for listening to Beyond the Obvious. This is the final podcast in our pilot series. However, please check in on our website at www.fasta.org because we plan to be back soon with some more podcasts. A big thank you to Nathan Jackson and Fergal Anderson and also to Leisha Kelly for her music on the harp. Music